0: How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth and shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. All Scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be equipped, thoroughly furnished to every, for every good work. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Before we begin our study, we always take a few moments of silent prayer to make sure that we are in fellowship, opportunity to confess sin, if necessary, in the privacy of our priesthood, to make sure that we are filled with the Spirit and ready to take in the Word under the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit. Let's bow our heads together and pray. Father, we do thank you for the fact that you have revealed to us your plan that human history is not just a, an assortment of chance happenings that have somehow worked together to give a semblance of meaning, but that it is the outworking of a plan that you established billions of years ago before you ever created the universe, and you have revealed to us the purpose of this plan and the reason for it, how it will work itself out in history to your ultimate glory. Now, Father, as we continue our study, we... Pray that you'd help us to understand these things and see how they relate to our own thinking and our own understanding of history. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. About six months ago, we started our study of God's plan for the ages to understand the overall scope of God's plan for human history. History is not just some sort of a collection of events that have just happened willy-nilly over the centuries, but there is a plan and purpose. History is the outworking of God's plan, and there are different stages in how God has administered history throughout the ages. Those different administrative stages are called dispensations. The word dispensation is a translation of the Greek word oikonomia. The noun is oikonomos meaning steward, and the noun oikonomia means an economy. See, we get our English word economy from oikonomia, and oikos means, it's a compound word, oikos means house, namas means law, means house law, house rule. It is the idea of an administration, and you know as parents, most of you, that you have different house laws, house rules in your house depending on the age of your children. If you don't have children, then you were one. And you know that now as an adult, when you stay at your parents, there are hopefully a different set of rules than those which applied when you were two or three years of age or even 11 or 12 years of age. And it's the same way that in God's plan for human history, there are these different stages of his administration. The Bible uses different words to refer to these, times, epochs. Uh, Dispensation refers to the, emphasizes the administration aspect, whereas the word ion refers to the age aspect or the chronological aspect. So you have words like chronos for times, chiron for seasons, and these relate to the advancing stages of God's plan, that each era builds upon a former era. And that in each of these eras, as we have looked at them, there are things that God is doing, that God is working out in relation to an even broader frame of reference, which we call the angelic conflict. Billions of years ago, before man. Was created, God had created another order of beings called the angels. And sometime in eternity past, the highest of all those angels, who was called Lucifer, the son of the morning, was uh, overwhelmed with pride, focused on pride, how great he was, wanted to have the same prestige that God had, so he sinned in his thinking. He became arrogant. And he fell and God, and we don't know all of the details of how this worked itself out, but God gave him enough time to test the other angels and approximately a third of the angels followed him in that rebellion. And that is called the prehistoric angelic conflict. God convened a trial. We know that because, or we infer that from Scripture, because so much of what happens in Scripture is Conveyed in courtroom terminology, everything from justification to um, the concept of God as a judge, our um, even words like confession are all words that have their basis in the courtroom, that there's, and that the angels learn things by watching us. We are, in fact, witnesses in this trial. So that's part of the function of human history, and in each stage, God is demonstrating certain things about man's uh, culpability as a sinner, that man is a failure because he is a sinner. He, is a, he sins because he is a sinner. He has a sin nature. We are do, do not, uh, not sinners because we sin. Let me say that again. That always throws people. We sin because we are sinners. We sin because by nature we are sinners. From the instant of birth we are born, we have inherited a sin nature from Adam, that sin nature has imputed to it Adam's original sin and the guilt and spiritual death that came with Adam's original sin. And because of that, we eventually commit personal sins. If you have children, you know that that doesn't take too long before their sin nature manifests itself. Man has, has, since the Garden of Eden, wanted to reestablish perfect environment on his own terms. That is a reflection of Satan's desire to establish a perfect environment on the earth so that he can demonstrate that he can be God. We have to remember those two things fit together in light of our study, uh, which we began last week on the millennial kingdom. Because in each of these stages of history, whether we talk about the age of the Gentiles in the Old Testament or the age of Israel in the Old Testament, which are past ages. In each of those broad ages, God was demonstrating certain things about human inability, that man was incapable of achieving any kind of utopic uh, society. There were attempts made by angelic infiltration prior to uh, the worldwide flood of Noah's time to establish a perfect environment on the earth. There were also attempts after the flood, the most renowned of which was the Tower of Babel, when the uh, when man, the human race, only had one language, so everybody got together and in unity tried to build a city and establish a uh, tower that would reach up to God. They were making a name for themselves over against God's name, and that's important because the word name is the Hebrew word, uh, Shem and God is often called, the God of Israel is often called the God of the name. And so there's the inference there that God is, that man was trying to establish himself over against God, that man could actually bring in perfect environment. That all failed. Now, we're in what's called the church age, and in the future, Jesus Christ will return to the earth and establish the millennial kingdom, which is the subject of what, what we are studying. In the millennial kingdom, there will once again be almost perfect environment on the earth it will be the closest to the garden of Eden that man has been since Adam sinned all of the institutions will be perfect there'll be perfect government there'll be the curse will be rolled back as far as the animal kingdom is concerned and it will be almost a perfect environment and yet at the end there will be a collapse there will, Satan will be released there'll be a rebellion against God demonstrating that the problems in human society are not the result of social institutions, they're not the result of government, they're not the result of education systems or lack thereof. They are the result of man being inherently sinful, so that when all of the other excuses are made, are removed or are, are those institutions are made perfect in the millennial kingdom, man is left with no excuse for his own failure except for his own nature. Now, just to give you a review of these ages, in the Old Testament, we divide it into two broad periods called ages, the age of the Gentiles and the age of Israel, and each of these are further subdivided into dispensations. The first dispensation is that of perfect environment from the creation of man until the time that Adam ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the human race fell. It was based on the creation covenant, We've studied all this. this. Those of you who are visitors, you're just going to have to uh, sort of fly along with us. But for the rest of you, this is old hat and good review. The, each dispensation is made up of certain elements. There's a responsibility in the perfect environment, and that was to, to take care of the garden, to guard it, to uh, fulfill the divine mandate to multiply and fill the earth. They were to fulfill that covenant, but there was a failure and that they ate the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which was forbidden. The divine judgment was spiritual death as outlined in Genesis chapter 3, verses 7 through 19. That began the second dispensation known as the age of human conscience, the dispensation of human conscience based on the Adamic covenant in Genesis 3, 14 through 19, which is a revision of the original creation covenant. The responsibility was animal sacrifice as a uh, ritual foreshadowing the future death of Jesus Christ to cover sin. The failure was that man was evil and wicked, according to Genesis 6, 5 through 6, and that man procreated with fallen angels in one of the most unusual episodes in human history, producing a hybrid race that threatened the purity of the human race, and as such... Threatened whether or not God could fulfill his promise to man to send a savior to die as a substitute for man. That savior had to be true humanity. And with an angelic infiltration, that threatened the genetic purity of the human race. And so God had to judge the human race through a worldwide flood that wiped out all but eight people. Noah, his wife, their three sons, and their wives. That began the next dispensation of the age of the Gentiles, that of human government. Based on the covenant with Noah in Genesis 9:1 through 17, they were responsible to fill the earth, but instead, and to scatter and fill the earth rather. But instead, they built the Tower of Babel and stayed in one location. Genesis 11:1 through 4, and God judged man with the confusion of languages. The human race as a whole failed, so God began to work through one man and his descendants, Abraham gave the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 12:1 through 3. As part of that, they were to remain a distinct people and not to assimilate with the Canaanites around them. And they failed. They assimilated. By Genesis 34, the uh, chosen family has basically compromised with the Canaanites around them. And in order to protect them, God sends them down into Egypt where they become enslaved. But the Egyptians have one of the most uh, profound... Uh, prejudicial systems there ever was. They, They won't have anything to do with these Asian Semites. They won't intermarry with them. They won't mix culturally with them. So they are isolated for approximately 400 years so that the nation can grow from about 70 individuals that can move down with Abraham to about 3 million by the time that God brings forth Moses as the deliverer to bring them out of slavery. After the Exodus, God gives them uh, the Mosaic Covenant. This is the second dispensation in the age of Israel. Responsibility for Israel was to obey the law. They disobeyed. The result was they were scattered among the nations. Then we have the unique age of human history, the Messianic age, when God reveals himself through the second person of the Trinity who becomes man, God with us, Emmanuel, and he is revealed as the Lagos, No man has seen God at any time, but the only begotten one has revealed him. The responsibility for Israel at that time is to accept him as Messiah. They reject him as Messiah, and there is judgment. Their sins are judged on the cross, but they enter into the fifth cycle of discipline. That ends the age of Israel, begins the church age, where every believer is a priest unto God, and every believer has an incredible number of assets given to him. The new covenant is established at the cross, and we become beneficiaries of it as Gentiles. The issue is faith alone in Christ alone, whether or not we accept Jesus Christ as Savior. Most people will reject Christ during this age, and the divine judgment that comes is called the tribulation. The church age ends with the rapture. Every believer is immediately taken in in an instant, blinking of an eye, is instantly transformed and we meet Christ in the air. That will be followed once the Antichrist signs a peace treaty with Israel with the tribulation period that is the time of the greatest violence and suffering in human history. That ends when Jesus Christ returns at the second coming and establishes the millennial kingdom, which is what we are studying now. The battle of Armageddon is when Jesus Christ comes back as king of kings and lord of lords and establishes his rule on the planet. The responsibility in the millennial kingdom is to obey Christ. The failure is that a number of Gentiles don't, and they lead a revolt against God at the end of the millennium called the Gog and Magog revolt. Satan is released for just a brief time in association with that revolt And then all unbelievers, Satan, and all those who are involved with that revolt are sent to the lake of fire. And then human history ends with the great white throne judgment. The present heavens and earth are destroyed. And we go into the eternal state with the new heavens and the new earth. And that chart will be printed out and available Sunday, I believe. Give that job to Ernie. That woke Ernie up. So we'll be have that ready to go. Now, we have looked at the prophetic panorama of these last ages. The church age ends with the rapture, seven years of tribulation, during which time at the judgment seat of Christ, all believers are evaluated for rewards and some will have loss of rewards. That concludes with the marriage of the Lamb. Then Jesus Christ returns at the second advent. There is a transition period of judgment before the millennium which is a 1,000-year period where Jesus Christ rules and reigns on the earth, ending with the great white throne judgment and then the new heavens and the new earth. Luke 1 is the announcement of Gabriel to Mary concerning Jesus' role as the king of Israel. He told her, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. You shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. Now, that's important because it's linking Jesus to that Davidic covenant. He gets the throne of his father David, not the throne of God in heaven. It's not some spiritualized throne. It is to be interpreted literally as it would be understood, that he would be sitting on the throne of David in the physical location of Jerusalem in Israel. The key passage uh, and then in Luke one thirty three says, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. Not just the millennium, but forever. And his kingdom will have no end. So that tells us that the millennial kingdom is really stage one in a two-stage development of the kingdom. Revelation 20 gives us the length of the kingdom. I saw an angel coming down from heaven having the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand and he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old who is the devil and Satan and bound him for a thousand years now Satan is a source of much misery today because 2 Peter, or 1 Peter 5 tells us that he goes about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour but there are too many people who want to uh, uh, absolve themselves of responsibility it's not their sin nature it's not that I'm wicked and evil it's the devil you know, if the devil weren't here we would have perfect environment and God is going to disprove that lie in the millennial kingdom. Too many people are running around saying, the devil made me do it, and it's just their own evil sin nature. They're just not willing to admit it. So Satan will be bound for a thousand years and thrown into the abyss, and then in verse uh, 6 we find out that we as believers will return with him, and in the last clause we learn that we will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. So that's our future. If we advance to spiritual maturity, because according to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, we will receive rewards based on our spiritual advance during this time on the earth. And that will determine where we are in terms of ruling and reigning with Christ. Now, I said last time there are three views of the, of the millennium and the relationship of Christ coming to the millennium. The first view is called postmillennialism. The first two views both have something to do with utopianism today, especially since the middle of the 19th century. Western society has been um, enamored with bringing in some kind of social perfectionism. And post-millennialism became closely entwined with social liberalism and liberal theology in the late 19th century. Postmillennialism didn't begin with liberal theology. You don't have to be liberal to be postmillennial, but it has certain certain affinities because it is divorced from the Scripture. It does not have a biblical base. In postmillennialism, the church age represented by this line here is cotemporaneous with the millennium. There, in, in postmillennialism, there's a continual progress based on their understanding of the Holy Spirit and eventually, by the end of the church age, most people on the planet will become believers and that will bring in a, uh, an worldwide peace and a perfect environment, perfect time of prosperity. Anybody, I don't know how anybody can believe this if they know Christians and they've been involved in any kind of local church for much of their ministry. How you get everybody to be saved does not mean you're going to bring in a, uh, any kind of era of uh, peace and prosperity. I've been around too many Christians to know better than that. But this is their view, and then Christ comes post-millennial, at the end of the millennium. That's when all the resurrections and judgments are beginning, the eternal state. The second view is known as millennial, a meaning no, no literal millennium. The church age and the millennium run, uh, once again, uh, contemporaneously. But the millennium, the kingdom is really a spiritual millennium. And there's no literal reign of Christ, no literal kingdom. And in both of those views, in both of those views, the church has replaced Israel in terms of in all the promises of God in the Old Testament so that God's no longer going to give a literal piece of real estate to Israel and there's no longer going to be Christ on a literal davidic throne it's all been spiritualized Christ is in heaven and the the land promises have now become spiritualized to be heaven so that's the problem with uh, amillennialism and postmillennialism is number 1 they interpret the scriptures literally and number 2 they have God violating his promises to uh, Israel. He no longer fulfills them literally. Premillennialism, which is the view we hold, believes that the, the, after the church age there will be a seven-year tribulation and that Jesus Christ returns to the earth at the second coming before the millennium, premillennial. And he establishes the kingdom and that is the 1,000-year rule and reign of Christ on the earth which ends with the great white throne judgment and the destruction of the present heavens and earth and the new heavens and earth being created and then the eternal state. The view of premillennialism is a very ancient view. This is a quote from uh, Philip Schaff, who wrote a well-known history of Christianity published about 100 years ago, and he writes concerning the early two centuries, the first two centuries of Christianity, the most striking point in the eschatology, that is the view of the last things, the doctrine of the last things, of the anti-Nicene age, Nicaea was the great church council in 325 A.D. So the anti-Nicene age is the age from roughly 100 A.D. to 325 A.D., the most striking point in the eschatology of the Antenicene Age is the prominent Kiliasm. Kiliasm is the Greek word kili, meaning a thousand, same as the Latin milli for a thousand. Uh, the, is the prominent Kiliasm or millenarianism. That is the belief of a visible reign of Christ in glory on earth with the risen saints for a thousand years before the general resurrection and judgment. It was indeed not the doctrine of the church embodied in any creed or form of devotion, but a widely current opinion of distinguished teachers such as Barnabas, Papias, Justin Martyr, Irenaeus, Tertullian, Methodius, and Lactantius. So he establishes the fact that it was the dominant view in the early church. Origen was one of the early church fathers towards the end of the second century, right, as it turns from about 290 to 300, and Origen introduced allegorical interpretation into Christianity. Before that time, it was literal. Origen opposed Kiliasm, or millenarianism, as a Jewish dream. See, there's also a very subtle anti-Semitism that runs through amillennialism and post Not every amill or post-mill is, is anti-Semitic, but Systemically, as a system, it has produced um, anti-Semitism. I think Hal Lindsay wrote a book called The Coming Holocaust uh, years, about ten years ago in which he established the uh, anti-Semitism of most omels and post Origin opposed Kiliasm as a Jewish dream and spiritualized the symbolic language of the prophets. The apocalyptic millennium he understood to be the present reign of Christ in the Catholic. That's not, that's universal. Catholic means universal. I find that a lot of people don't realize that. But if you read the old creeds and they talk about we believe in the Catholic Church, a lot of Protestants just go, I don't believe in the Catholic Church. That's not what they're talking about. Catholic means universal. and You don't have a Roman Catholic church until 600 at the earliest. So they're talking about the universal church, which we all believe in. Um, the, he, or, uh, he states, the apocalyptic millennium he understood to be the present reign of Christ and the Catholic church and the first resurrection, the translation of the martyrs and saints to heaven, where they participate in Christ's uh, reign. So that's this current age. From the time of Constantine, about 425 A.D., and Augustine, Kiliasm took its place among heresies. So from 425 A.D. to approximately 1600 A.D., if you believed in a literal thousand-year reign of Christ on the earth, you were a heretic. That's why when somebody comes along and they ask us about, well, find somebody in history who believed in the rapture before John Nelson Darby. It's hard to find anybody. There are a few, and we've discovered evidence of that. But um, it's hard to find people who, who believed in a pre-trib rapture because to believe in a pre-tribulation rapture, you have to believe in a premillenarian view of history. And nobody was believing or teaching or holding to or developing premillennialism from roughly 325, 425 uh, B.C. to, I mean, 425 A.D. to 1600. So, for approximately 1,200 years, nobody's thinking in terms of premillennialism. Now, last time we said that the, that the millennium fulfills all of the Old Testament covenants. When Christ comes back at the second coming, he is going to fulfill the three or four major unconditional covenants of the Old Testament. These are the Abrahamic covenant, the real estate covenant or the land covenant in Deuteronomy 30, the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel 7, and the new covenant of Jeremiah 31. Now, last time we got through, I think it was the Davidic covenant section, and we were just on the edge of getting into the new covenant fulfillment. The Abrahamic covenant promises that the descendants of Abraham... A specific piece of real estate, from the river of uh, in Genesis 15:18, it's described as being from the river of Egypt as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. So this encompasses much more than the present land of Israel. In fact, today I read in, um, that Saddam Hussein has called for a holy war to wipe out uh, Israel, return the land to the Palestinians, and that they shouldn't accept any compromise on any land. At all, all the, from the Mediterranean to the Jordan, including Jerusalem. Well, he's got his facts wrong. Number one, there never was a Palestinian people. The term Palestine was invented by Emperor Hadrian in about 125 AD after the Jewish Bar, Bar Kokhba revolt in order to, uh, de, uh, or in order to remove the Semitic overtones from the land because he, was, he, he there were too many revolts going on from the Jews, so he wanted to get them all out of Israel, and he wanted to change the name. So he changed it to Palestine, which etymologically goes back to the Philistines, and the Philistines never ran the land or never owned the land. And he didn't remove all the Jews. Jews had a visible, physical presence on the land all throughout the ages. There were no Palestinian people there. There were various Arabs who migrated through the land, but they never established a civilization. In fact, most of the time, the area which we call Israel was just a, a um, sort of a uh, uh, region, it's the southern region of Syria. But God promised all that land, all the way up into Syria, on both sides of the Jordan, for Israel. And that Abraham, in Genesis 15:18, he says... To your descendants I've given the land, and back in Genesis 12, he said he was giving it to Abram. And what that means is that to fulfill these promises to Abram, we saw the two things have to happen. Abraham must be resurrected, and the land must be restored in full. Isaiah 27:12 restates those boundaries in verse 13, or in verse 12, from the stream of Euphrates to the brook of Egypt. Second, we saw regarding the land covenant in Deuteronomy 29, that God promised that he would return, regenerate Israel to the land. This is restated in Jeremiah 23, 3 and 4, where God says, "...then I myself shall gather the remnant of my flock." Notice, the remnant is the believers in Israel. "...I shall gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them, and shall bring them back to their pasture, and they will be fruitful and multiply." He's going to reestablish the throne of David. This is seen in reconfirmation, Isaiah 9, 6, and 7, which is then quoted uh, later in the Gospels. In Isaiah 9, 6, we read, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Father of Eternity. That's the corrected translation. The son is not the father. It should be translated Father of Eternity. Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. It will be time of worldwide peace. It's going to be the first time in human history there aren't wars. There will be world peace under his rule. Until then, every attempt at bringing about peace is going to fail. He will be on the throne of David and over his kingdom. Now, that must be understood as any Jew would have understood it at that time to be the physical, literal throne of David and over his kingdom that is the kingdom God promised which extends from the brook of Egypt to the river Euphrates he will establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this Isaiah 16:5 we read a throne will be will even be established in loving kindness and a judge will sit on it in faithfulness in the tent of David now That's a future tense for being established. The throne of God in heaven, the supreme court of heaven, is continual. It was in existence at that time, so it it cannot be that throne. Therefore, it can't be the throne, uh, a present throne for Jesus in heaven. It must be one that is on the earth. A throne will even be established in loving kindness. A judge will sit on it in faithfulness in the tent of David. What else could that mean except a literal house of David in Israel during the millennium, moreover, he will seek justice and be prompt in righteousness. So it will be an era characterized by justice and righteousness. Jeremiah 23, 5, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I shall raise up for David a righteous branch, and he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. Then again in Jeremiah thirty-three fourteen: Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the good word which I have spoken concerning the house of Israel and the house of Judah, in those days and at that time I will cause a righteous branch of David to spring forth and he shall execute justice and righteousness on the earth. In those days Judah shall be saved and Jerusalem shall dwell in safety. That has never happened. It certainly isn't happening today. We just had an instance this morning of some bombings that took place as some uh, Arab... Uh, Militant Arab terrorists blew themselves up along with other, other Jews as an attack on Israel. So, Israel, Jerusalem has never dwelt in safety, but will at that time. And this is the name by which she shall be called, the Lord is our righteousness. Jeremiah thirty-three seventeen. for thus says the Lord David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. And of the Levitical priest shall never lack a man before me to offer burnt offerings, to burn great offering, grain offerings, and to prepare sacrifices continuously. Then in Ezekiel thirty four twenty three, then I will set over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will feed them and he will feed them himself and be their shepherd, and I the Lord will be their God, and my servant David will be prince among them, I the Lord have spoken. And then Hosea 3.5, afterward, the sons of Israel will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they will come trembling to the Lord and to his goodness in the last days. Now that verse tells us that there's two different personages here. They're going to seek the Lord, The second that is a reference to Jesus Christ, second person of the Trinity, the Messiah, and David their king, because David will be resurrected to rule over Israel in the millennial kingdom. And then in Amos 9, 11 and 12, uh, in that day I will raise up the fallen booth of David and wall up its breaches. I will also raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom, that's the Transjordan area, and all the nations who are called by my name. So there we see that God is going to literally fulfill his promise to David. He's going to give him an eternal dynasty, an eternal throne, and there will be an eternal person on the throne, so God's going to fulfill those three, those four great unconditional covenants to Israel. They've never been fulfilled literally, and yet the promise is to, over and over and over again in the prophets of the Old Testament. In Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Hosea, Amos, Zephaniah, Zechariah are some of the most profound promises that God will regather Israel in the land. And that would involve a regeneration of the nation, and that's the next point in our study is that Israel will be regenerated at the end of the tribulation. One third it says. Two thirds were going to be martyred or going to be killed at the end of the tribulation, but those who survive will all be believers. Romans eleven says all thus all Israel will be saved, talking about that time. Now this relates to the new covenant. Uh, The basic passage we saw for the new covenant is Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. We have it on the overhead just for a brief review. God told Jeremiah, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Notice it's not with the church. It's with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with the fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. What was that covenant? That was the Mosaic covenant that was on Mount Sinai. That was the old covenant. He goes on to say, My covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. Verse 33, But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days. After what days? After the days of the tribulation. This passage has just gone through a uh, rehearsal of this, this horrible event of the day of the Lord. And after... Those days, uh, God establishes this covenant with Israel. So even though it was established at the cross, it's not fulfilled and applied to Israel until they um, are put in the land at the second coming of Christ. After those days, I will put my law within them. And on their heart I will write it. Notice he's talking about the whole nation as regenerate. I'll make that clear from some other passages in a minute. And I will be their God, and they will be, and they shall be my people. Verse 34. And they shall not teach again, each man his neighbor, and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. And in this context, the phrase knowing the Lord is not a phrase of academic awareness. He's not saying, know the Lord, that God exists, and that you can have a relationship with him. It's not the fact that all the Jews are going to recognize, because it's in the Millennial Kingdom, that Jesus is on the throne of David, that God actually does exist. The term, know the Lord, has more to it than simple academic information. Uh, whenever, when you get into the Old Testament, when you get into Hebrew, you realize that the word know, yada can mean simple academic information, but it also implies having a personal, intimate relationship. When it says in Genesis chapter 4 that Adam knew his wife, it does not imply that he looked across the pasture and said, Yes, that's Eve. That's not talking about academic recognition talking about having a personal, intimate relationship, because the result was a child. (laughs) So, when it says here that all Israel will know God, it is not saying that all Israel is going to be aware that God exists. It is stating that all Israel is going to have a personal relationship with Him, everyone, so that there is no need for... Uh, an evangelist in Israel during this age. That's what that is talking about when it's talking about teaching, and specifically in relation to evangelism. They shall not teach again, each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, for I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin I will remember no more. And then in Jeremiah 24, 7, we see the future fulfillment of this. Coming at the end of the time of the day of the Lord and that great tragedy known as Jacob's, the time of Jacob's trouble. Jeremiah 24, 7. I will give them a heart to know me, for I am the Lord, and they will be my people, and I will be their God, for they will return to me with their whole heart. There will be national regeneration. God isn't forcing them. He is going to, in a sense, He does, because He's going to make things so horrible for Israel that it literally brings them to their spiritual knees, and even though two-thirds refuse to accept the fact of what's going on and refuse to cry out for Jesus, the Messiah, to come and save them, one-third does. They're the third that escapes into the wilderness down in Basra, and that is where Jesus comes to rescue them. It's that one-third that, in their human mortal bodies, repopulates the earth and reestablishes Israel in the Millennial Kingdom. And those are the ones who are regenerate and have a heart for the Lord, and they will be given a new heart. Jeremiah 50:19 and 20. And I shall bring Israel back to his pasture, and he will graze on Carmel, Mount Carmel, and Bashan. And his desire will be satisfied in the hill country of Ephraim and Gilead. In those days and at that time, future tense. In those days and at that time, declares the Lord, search will be made for the iniquity of Israel, but there will be none. The iniquity of Israel is a technical term for Israel's rejection of God as they had rejected God through idolatry and then through religious legalism after the after the 70-year Babylonian captivity. So, search will be made for the iniquity of Israel, but there will be none. That doesn't mean that they're sinless. What it's saying is the iniquity is talking about one particular iniquity, which is their rejection of God as their God. And so, they will all be saved. For the sins of Judah, they will not be found, for I shall pardon those whom I leave as a remnant. So all of them are viewed as a remnant. Up to this point, there's two groups in Israel. There's Israel, unregenerate Israel, and then there's the remnant that's trusted, Christ as Savior. But in the millennial kingdom, there's no division. Israel is viewed as a whole. There's no remnant talk at that time. Ezekiel 11:19. And I shall give them one heart, and shall put a new spirit within them, regeneration. And I shall take the heart of stone out of the flesh, and give them a heart of flesh. And that they may walk in my statutes, and keep my ordinances, and do them. Then they will be my people, and I shall be their God. Uh, Ezekiel 20, verse 40 makes this abundantly clear. For on my holy mountain, now in the millennial age... What's going to happen as a result of the earthquake that comes along at the, at the end of the tribulation that splits the Mount of Olives is that there's going to be this enormous eruption of, of, a, of a plateau that's almost a mile high in the center part of Israel. And that is going to be the mountain of God. And it is, uh, it is several, it's 40 or 50 miles long and several Uh, 10 or 20 miles wide and it is on top of that mountain that the millennial temple will be built and where, uh, Jerusalem will be and where everyone will go to worship during the millennial kingdom. So in Ezekiel 11, or Ezekiel 20 verse 40, on my holy mountain and on the high mountain of Israel, that's talking about the the temple mount that will be uh, elevated by the Lord Jesus Christ at His second coming, there the whole house of Israel, all of them, now, how much more emphatic could the Holy Spirit be than to say, the whole house, all of them? want to make it clear that none are being left behind. The whole house of Israel, all of them will serve me in the land. There I shall accept them, and there I shall seek your contributions and the choicest of your gifts with all your holy things. Ezekiel 36, 24 through 28. For I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the lands, bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, regeneration, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. This reminds us of the terminology back in Ezekiel 11:19, And I will put my spirit within you. That's the same terminology you have in Jeremiah 31. It's New Covenant terminology. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. And you will live in the land that I gave to your forefathers, so you will be my people, and I will be your God. This is the restoration of Kingdom, as opposed to the church age, has a distinctly Jewish flavor. In fact, Israel will finally be elevated above all the nations, and every na- no nation will be anti-Semitic, and everybody will look to Israel as the greatest nation in all of human history because of the blessings that God has given to them as His chosen people. One last verse on the uh, fulfillment of the New Covenant Ezekiel 37:14, and I will put my spirit within you and you will come to life and I will place you on your own land. Then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken and done it, declares the Lord. It is because God restores them to the land. The empirical evidence of history then becomes a convincing factor for those who are unsaved in the millennial kingdom. Now, all of that I have said so far is just to establish the fact and to remind us of the great promises of God in in the covenants, in the Abrahamic covenant, the real estate covenant, the Davidic covenant, and the new covenant. And that many of those factors, in fact, most of them have never been literally fulfilled in history. And so you're left with two options, only two options. Either, Either God is not going to fulfill them literally, or God is going to fulfill them literally. If God's not going to fulfill them literally, then God misrepresented himself in all of those covenants to Israel in the Old Testament. So that to say that they're fulfilled allegorically or spiritually to the church is to really blaspheme the name of God. That he's not going to do what he said to you because many of these were fulfilled partially. And that's why I think covenant theology, covenant eschatology, is really a blasphemy against the character of God. But we believe that God is going to fulfill those literally, and therefore there is yet to be a time when God is going to pour out all of these blessings on Israel. Just another reminder of another term we've used, replacement theology. That's why all these other systems of theology, Roman Catholicism, Lutheranism, Presbyterianism, Methodism, all, the, all of those theological systems are replacement theology. They believe that, is, that the church has replaced Israel in these covenants. And only dispensationalism, only a dispensational view of history takes seriously the promises of God and interprets them literal in terms of literal fulfillment. Now, the transition to the millennium. We've seen in our uh, overview that at the end of the uh, tribulation, there is a massive battle called the Armageddon Campaign. This concludes in Revelation 19, so you can turn your, open your Bibles there to Revelation chapter 19, and we're going to look at the mopping up operation at the end of the tribulation, starting in verse 17. Jesus, at this point, is descending with the armies of heaven, which are all of the saints with him. The bride of Christ is with him. And he is descending on a white horse, which shows that there are at least animals in heaven. In case some of you are wondering, I don't know if that means that our beloved pets will end up in heaven, but there will be animals in heaven, at least horses. And he will be descending as the king of kings and lord of lords. Verse 17, we read, And I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice. The person speaking here is John, who is seeing this vision. And he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in mid-heaven, Come, assemble for the great supper of God. This is the gory feast of all the carrion birds at the end of Armageddon, when Thousands, if not millions, have been slain all over Israel from the valley of Jezreel in the north all the way down to, to Basra in the east and down to uh, the uh, Negev in the south. Come, assemble for the great supper of God in order that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them in the flesh of of all men, both free men and slaves, small and great. When the uh, blood runs as high as the height of a bridle, three to four feet in height all over Israel, it is going to be a massive cleanup. And so there's going to be a transition period between the end of the uh, tribulation and the millennium. Now this verse goes on just to fill the passage goes on just to fill in a couple of other gaps. I saw the beast, that's the Antichrist, and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat upon the horse and against his army. And the beast was seized, and the beast was seized, and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his present, by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast, and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone and the rest were killed with the sword which came from the mouth of him who sat upon the horse and all the birds were filled with their flesh. Now that is quite a gory scene and it is further described or the timing of it is described in Daniel. The destruction, devastation and damage caused here at the end is going to take some time for cleanup. Now this is a passage that's confused a few people. In Daniel twelve eleven we get an interesting chronology. It says Daniel writes, From the time that the regular sacrifice is abolished, that happened in at the mid trib point with the abomination of desolation back in Daniel nine, twenty five through twenty seven, from the time that the regular sacrifice is abolished and the abomination of desolation is set up, there will be one thousand two hundred and ninety days. So now earlier we saw in, in Daniel that it's 1,260 days. So there's a, this adds 30 days to that. So from the midpoint of the tribulation, get a tribulation lasts seven years, seven years, 1,260 days in the first half, 1,260 days in the second half midpoint, you have the abomination of desolation. And from that point to the end is 1,290 days. So we have an extra 30 days after the end of those 1,260 days. That's for cleanup. And for the judgment of the nations. And then the next verse says, the next verse says, how blessed is he who keeps waiting and attains to the 1,335 days. So, that adds another 45 days to the 1,290. Now, here we're going to challenge your math. See, when you learn doctrine, everything is... You learn something in every field, even mathematics. So, that first 30 days is going to be cleanup, And then the next 45 days is going to involve judgment. Those who survive, the text says... To the 1,335th days are those who survived the judgment. That's the judgment that, that Jesus refers to in Matthew 25, as we'll see in a minute, the sheep and the goat judgment, which removes unbelievers to the lake of fire, and only believers survive. So this, those who survive to 1,335 are believers only. During that time of judgment... Clean up in judgment, all unbelievers are removed from the planet. So we have a transition period here of 75 days between the uh, time of the second coming and the actual beginning of the 1,000-year reign of Christ on the earth. What happens during that time? Well, we've mentioned clean up already, judgment already. Those Jews who are not in the land, apparently, are regathered. Isaiah 56.8 says, The Lord God, who gathers the dispersed of Israel, declares, Yet others I will gather to them, to those already gathered. Those already gathered are, the, are those who survive in Israel. Ezekiel 11.17, therefore, therefore say, Thus says the Lord God, I shall gather you from the peoples, and assemble you out of the countries among which you have been scattered, and I shall give you the land of Israel. And, I shall, and then Ezekiel 20:34, And I shall bring you out from the peoples and gather you from the lands where you were scattered with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm and with wrath poured on. So it is at this time, during this final period at the, after the battle of Armageddon, that all remaining Jews are returned to Israel. They're all believers at this point. Then there will be a judgment of all tribulation survivors. In Matthew, this is recorded in Matthew 25. So turn back to Matthew 25. This passage is too long to put up on the screen. So we'll turn there. Matthew 25, 31 through 46 records the, this judgment. When the Son of Man comes in His glory. Now notice, it gives us a time reference there with the temporal particle when. But when the Son of Man comes in His glory, that second coming, and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Notice, not now, He's not sitting on the throne of David in heaven. It is then. That's against all the ah-mills, post-mills, and progressive dispensationalists who really aren't dispensationalists. But when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne and all the nations will be gathered before Him. And He will separate them from one another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And He will put the sheep on His right and the goats on the left. Then the King will say to those on His right, Come you who are blessed of My Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. So these are they who survived the tribulation. They are tribulation saints and they go into an inheritance in the kingdom. Then he says something that's perplexing to some. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. Naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and invite you in or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine. Who are the brothers of mine? That's right. The 144,000. It is the Jews in the tribulation. It's not just anybody. It's the Jews in the tribulation. And remember... When you take the mark of the beast, it was a visible. It's it's going to be a visible symbol to everyone that you have given your allegiance to the Antichrist. The the, uh, 144,000 are sealed with a visible symbol, so that they will be readily identified. The tribulation will be unique. It's not like today when people can say, "I trust Christ and I'm a believer," and just kind of and not live like it when they go to work or wherever they go. It will be a time when people will have to live out overtly what they believe. So there will be different dynamics at work, and there will also be this visible expression. And and so believers will protect other believers and and protect Jews. They will understand the terrors of anti-Semitism and what God is doing with Israel. And so, because of that, because they're saved, they will operate a certain way in relationship to Israel. And so, Jesus is saying, because you, uh, were, uh, you were good to the Jews, uh, because you were, and that is because they were believers, you will go into my kingdom. It is not a work salvation, and salvation is never by works, but is an evidence of that salvation. And then, in verse 46, we'll skip the next section skip down to 46, those, the others, the goats, will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. And the only way to receive righteousness is to put your faith and trust in Christ alone. And at the instant of salvation, God imputes to us. At the instant of faith alone in Christ alone, God imputes perfect righteousness. So, imputes to us the perfect righteousness of Christ. And it is on that basis that God declares us to be just. So there will be a judgment of all tribulation survivors. This is also stated in Joel 3, 1 and 2. For behold, in those days and at that time when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem. Notice the time frame. In the other one, it was when Jesus returned in his glory. Here it's when I uh, restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem. I will gather all the nations. Bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. That's right outside of Jerusalem. Then I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my inheritance Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations, and they have divided up my land. So that is the judgment that is uh, accomplished and that's the location in the valley of jehoshaphat. and then the other thing that happens is the resurrection of Old testament saints and martyred tribulation saints first corinthians fifteen twenty to twenty four Mentions the ranks of the first resurrection. Christ is the first fruits. The church is raptured. Or is the first rank that passes in review. Then the church. Then the um, uh, the third rank or the next rank after the church age is Old Testament saints, and then tribulation saints. Next time we'll come back to look at the characteristics of the millennium, and we will start there, because we need to get into that. Uh, the characteristics of the millennium, and that will get us to the worship of the millennium and questions about sacrifices during the millennium. Are they going to have literal animal sacrifices in the millennium and why? And also, what is the nature of the millennial temple going to be uh, at, at that time? With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, we do thank you for this time to look at your word, to understand how you will eventually bring to pass all the promises that you have made to Israel, that everything will be brought to completion during the millennial kingdom and it will be the time of the greatest peace and prosperity in in human history because and only because the government will be headed by the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here who is unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that sure and certain by putting their faith alone in Christ alone. Scripture says all that you need to do is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things that we've studied, that we might live a life to prepare ourselves spiritually to rule and reign with you in the kingdom. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.